We're grateful for your grace because we didn't deserve to be set free. We deserve to be chained. We deserve to be held captive. It's our decisions and choices that have put us there. But you set us free. We're so grateful for that, Lord. And we want to understand that more and more. We want to, we want to grow in the knowledge of what you have done. We, we want to better live in light of what you have done. And so, Lord, we come to this moment right here to open up Your Word, to open up the Holy Scriptures and to allow You to speak to our heart so that we might understand more, so that we might more live in light of Your amazing grace and what it's done in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen. Well, in the late 1960s, Thomas Harris wrote a book that became a, a really a permanent fixture on the New York Times bestseller list. As a matter of fact, as of today, it has sold well over 7 million copies. And even though Thomas Harris himself died in 1997, that book has been republished as recently as 2004. It's a familiar title. Some of you may know it, and I think when I say it, you'll know it. It's that book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. That book's been around for a long time, has a very simple message. As a matter of fact, you don't have to read it real far past the title. That's pretty much the message of the book. We all want to know we're okay, so let's just decide we are. I'll tell you what, I'll decide I'm okay, you decide you're okay, and, and we'll all be the better for it. You know, I can't help but wonder as I look at where our nation is today, if that book, if that teaching, which has become very predominant, is one of the precursors to American tolerance. You know, we tolerate everything in our society. Nothing is wrong. It's wrong for you to say something is wrong. As a matter of fact, it's not enough to say everything is right. If it's something that makes you feel okay, if it's something that tells you you're okay, then it's a right. It's not just that it's right, it's a right. And anybody's wrong for denying you of that. You know, when I, when I think of that, I can't help but think of... Paul's warning, Paul's challenging to, challenge to us in 2 Timothy 4, when he said, a time will come when they will not endure or they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their desires, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. And look at that phrase right there in that, that second line. Will not tolerate sound doctrine. And I'm saying we will tolerate everything but the truth. Now, that's, that passage right there is speaking to a tendency in humanity of things that we'll see. But isn't that America right there? We will tolerate everything but truth. Because you know what? Truth can make me sometimes feel like I'm not okay. Tr truth causes us to have to align. And sometimes that alignment's not very comfortable. So sometimes that alignment doesn't feel very good. So we will tolerate everything but the truth. Now, you know, the church is the holder of truth. It's the keeper of truth. And because of that, especially in the last decade or so, the church has more and more been labeled as intolerant, bigoted, even mean. And, you know, we don't like to be called mean, do we? And so the church has kind of responded to the culture, has responded to what is happening with this, I'm okay, you're okay, We've kind of responded to this in two different ways, two really different extremes. 
One extreme is the church caves in. you got a lot of churches today that they will say, there's nothing wrong. You know, we just all want to have a very positive, encouraging message. We just want to get along. We want to talk about being successful. We want to talk about feeling good. And, and we don't like to use words like sin and hell because, well, those are, those are just mean words. We don't want to use those. And boy, you know what? Probably that is most evidence today in what we see in some churches. As a matter of fact, I think, to my understanding, the largest church in America and maybe one of the most popular preachers on TV today has consistently said, I don't like to use the word sin. Now, never mind that Jesus used it over and over and over. You see, what makes them feel good is the popularity of our message, the excitement of our message. That's what tells them they're okay. But now there's just as bad an extreme in the other direction. There's the church that caves in, then there's the church that casts in. They cast culture into hell. They cast people into hell. And for the sake of purity of truth, at least that's what they tell themselves, they dig in their heels against society. They dig in their heels against people. And they just cast them all in hell. They say, everybody's wrong. It's us four and no more. You know, there is no room in these churches for a sinner that's in need of that grace we just sang about. No, no, no. You have to have attained my level of moral superiority to feel comfortable in this room. And by the way, they're not morally superior. They've just put together a list of rules. You know these churches? They've got a list of rules that tells me I'm better than you. I keep this little list right here, so that makes me good. That makes you bad. And that's what makes me feel okay. I'm a little bit further down the road than you. Neither one of these extremes is why God has left the church here. Neither one of these extremes is, is what the Bible gives us. We come to a passage today that strikes that perfect balance. We're going to look at five verses, five short verses that are very quickly going to tell us you are not okay. But the good news is God wants you to be okay. He's provided a way for you to be okay, but you won't appreciate that until you first understand that you're not okay. Okay? <laughs> you know, I wonder. I wonder if America's going to get over this silliness of saying that everything out there is okay, and then that's what will make me feel okay. I, I don't think they are. I think it'll get worse and worse. Which is why we must indeed dig in our heels on the truth. But remember, that truth is good news. That truth doesn't throw people away. It doesn't shun people. It invites people. It has good news for people. Let's look at that truth today. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2 as we can continue our study in this great letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, as always, I encourage you to use one of our pew Bibles there. You'll find the page number inside the bulletin. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. It says there, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. 
We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature, we were children under wrath, as others were also. But God, but God who is abundant in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses, by grace. By grace, you are saved. Now, we're just looking at these first five verses this morning, but as you look down there at your text, it's really these first ten verses that make up a unit. If, if you've got a Bible that, that puts titles above the paragraphs, you'll probably notice it has a, some kind of title above verse 1, and then it gets down to verse 11 and, and puts another title. So, 1 to 10 is kind of a unit. We're just going to look at the first half of that today. But if you were to try to kind of break this unit up, it's in two pieces. Verses 1 to 3 describe for us our old condition. And that is that we are dead to God. And then verses 4 through 10 describe for us our new position. We are alive in God. The subject of these ten verses is God. God is the, the subject. God is the one doing the work. Now, you read these first three verses and you say, well, this isn't about God. This is, this is about us. We're the subject. No, we're, what these first three verses are doing is describing our condition. It's describing the condition of the direct object of the subject, God, the direct object of God's work. That's what that's describing. And it's not pleasant to look at, is it? No, it's not pleasant to look at these three verses. These three verses don't make us feel okay. But it is imperative that we see these three verses, that we understand these verses. It's imperative that we understand our condition because that's when we'll really begin to appreciate just what God has done for us. These first three verses describe for us how God sees us outside of Christ. Many of us today are inside of Christ. This was describing us last year or, or maybe even years and years and years ago. Or today, if you're not a believer, if you're not inside of Jesus, then these verses describe your present condition. These verses describe how God sees you today, right now. And again, it's not very encouraging. There's not nice words. There's not feeling good words in these th first three verses. Gosh, you look down here and you see dead and trespasses and sins and disobedient and wrath. Gosh, those aren't fun words. Man, I came out here in the rain this morning. I want to feel good. No, these aren't good words. But they're the truth. They're the truth of our condition outside of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice here in verse 1 and then again in verse 5, you'll see a phrase repeated two times. This phrase, dead in trespasses and sins. Dead is our spiritual condition. You've heard me talk about this on a number of times. That word is so significant to understanding why our human tendency is wrong. You see, it's our nature to think if we do enough that God ought to acknowledge that. If we're good enough, we ought to be rewarded for that. And that's why man's created religion. But these verses tell us why religion won't work. 
These verses tell us why being good enough won't work. It's not because God's in a bad mood. It's not because God just refuses to acknowledge all of my good efforts at trying to be like Him. No, God is saying, you're dead! A spiritually dead person cannot produce anything of spiritual value any more than a physically dead person can produce something of physical value. A spiritually dead person cannot communicate on a spiritual realm any more than a physically dead person can communicate on a physical realm. Dead is our condition. By definition, that means we are lifeless, we are powerless to change our condition. The reason we are in that condition is because we are in trespasses and sins. Two words there. Doesn't really need to be two words. Trespasses and sins are, is absolutely two words that are synonymous. They have almost identical meaning. There's, there's not much difference between them. I think Paul uses two words there for emphasis. He's trying to make sure we don't try to wiggle out of this. Because you know, we might say, gosh, dead? You know, that seems like, that seems like awfully a, a bad thing to say just because I made a mistake. That's what we call a lot of our sin, isn't it? I made a mistake. I mean, who's perfect? Or you might say, gosh, that's not fair. I mean, I didn't know. I, I didn't know. So we might claim ignorance. We might claim it's a mistake. But I think these two words together, what Paul's saying is, uh-uh. You are where you are. You're in the condition that you're in by willful, conscious choice. You have willfully, you have consciously chosen to be disobedient. Now, you know what? I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect. I don't think many of us are going to say that. But, gosh, to sum up my life as disobedient, I just, seem, I just don't think that's fair. That, that seems a little over the top. What, what do you mean by disobedient? Well, that's what these two verses here, verses 2 and 3, are defining for us. Because, you know, you and I, when we say disobedient, we think, no, wait a minute, I didn't lie today. I didn't hit anybody today. I didn't steal anything. I think I'm good to go. Disobedience here is defined as, I don't walk like God in this world. I don't walk like God. I don't walk after God. Now, verses 2 and 3 here, and these are difficult verses, aren't they? Those are kind of some odd phrases. We, we don't use words like that a lot. The, the meaning of these verses doesn't just leap off the page at us. But in reality, these two verses, verses 2 and 3, are really very simple and they're describing for us what disobedience is. Disobedience is this. I don't walk after God. I don't walk like God. You know who I walk like? I do what the world wants me to do. I walk like the world does. I look at everybody around me and I look to them to tell me what is right and wrong. You know who else I walk after? I walk after the devil. I let him tell me what is right and wrong. And then it gets just a little bit worse as we get into verse 3 because we find out that we actually like that. We enjoyed taking our cues from the world and Satan because it's what we wanted anyway. Those three statements, which are kind of defining for you what these two verses are saying, could be summed up even simpler than that. Disobedience is this. I take my cues on how to live from the world and from Satan, and I liked it. That, that's where I learned what was okay. You know, the, the Bible tells me things about, well, for instance, sexual immorality. 
And we go out there and we see movies that tell us what sexual what sexuality ought to look like and what our friends tell us what sexuality ought to look like. Now, the Scripture says something else, but am I taking my cues from Scripture? No, I'm looking at what CNN and what the movies and what my friends tell me, and then there's my own desires that get up involved in that. And so, hey, you know what? I find out that works pretty good for me. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel okay. And we'll look at a lot of issues. That's just one. We'll look at a lot of issues in society and we're letting society define for us what's right and wrong. Where are you taking your cues today? You know, Paul kind of gives us a test to help us kind of see where we're getting our cues from. Look with me back a few pages. If you're in Ephesians, just go back a page or two to the left. You'll be very quickly in the book of Galatians or the letter that Paul wrote to, to Galatia. And look at Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 16. Galatians 5 verse 16. It says, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Who am I walking after? Who am I following? Who am I taking my cues from? Is it from the Spirit? Is it from God or am I taking it from the flesh? And flesh here is representative of those three things. My sinful nature, the world, and Satan. Where am I taking my cues from? Well, Paul gives us a description of these two lives. Look at verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. If you're taking your cues from the world, from Satan, and from your own sinful nature, this is what it's going to look like. And look what it says here. Sexual immorality, moral impurity promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar about which I tell you in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that the Spirit is in control of your life, the product of taking your cues from God is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Boy, now that's, a, that's a, uh, an idea there that's absolutely contrary to American living. Self-control. Now, here's a simple question. Which of these two lists is most representative of your life? Now, I'm not talking about being perfect. Because unfortunately, even as a growing believer, we can have a little bit of both lists going on in our life. But I want to tell you something. One of these two lists is dominant in your life. One of these two lists is more representative, has more of a hold on your life than the other. You cannot have both lists fully entrenched in your life. That's impossible. One of these two is more you. Which one is it? If it's that first list, you're not okay. If it's that first list, it says there, you will not go to heaven. You are not in a relationship with God. You may go to church periodically. You may keep a certain list of rules, but if that list is most representative of your life, you're not okay. As a matter of fact, as we go back to Ephesians 2, the passage we're in, Paul describes somebody living under the cues 
of that list, he says, you know what? You're a son of disobedience. You're a child under wrath. Let's kind of summarize these three discouraging verses. Paul says your life is in rebellion to God. It's who you are. It is you inside and out. You cannot claim any kind of innocence. You are and you will be a recipient of God's wrath. And you by nature can do nothing. You are powerless. You are lifeless to change that condition. But... Man, would you look at verse 4 there. Look at those, two first, those first two words in verse 4. But God. You know what? If you have your own Bible today, I would encourage you to circle those two words. But God. And, and out next to, the, to those two words, you need to write this. My whole life hangs on those two words. You see, we were dead, but God. We were living according to the world and to Satan, and we enjoyed it, but God. We were hell-bent on wrath, but God. Man, in contrast to who I was, in contrast to what I was, in contrast to what I deserved, God made me alive. God reached down and touched me spiritually and made me alive. And now my life can count. Now my life can communicate in the spiritual realm, can communicate with God because of, but God, I now can live in heaven. I now can live in a relationship with God. My whole life is hanging on those two words right there. If those two words are never there, I'm going to die and go to hell. I'm going to live forever in pain, separated from God. But that God moved. But that God worked. Man, how does He do that? Why would He do that? It says here, because of His abundant mercy. Maybe your translation says, He was rich in mercy. You know what that word mercy means? It means that God literally... Now remember what our condition is. Our condition is dead to God. Our condition is in rebellion. We're fighting God. We're against God. We don't want to be like God. And He looked down and He literally felt compassion for the condition we put ourselves in. He hurt. He hurt for how we were handling things, how we were handling life, how we were handling our relationships. He hurt for the future that that marked out for us. He hurt, even though we were fighting against Him. You know, this word mercy in both the Old and New Testament quite often carries with it the idea of, of faithfulness. You see, it's because God is merciful that He is faithfully kind to us even though we're not always faithfully kind to Him. It's because of God's mercy that He faithfully loves us, even though we don't faithfully love Him. It's by His mercy that He remains faithfully committed to us, even though we've not faithfully been committed to Him. 
Now, if we're in the condition that we're in, you can't help but start to wonder. Now, first of all, I say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But then my next question is, can I ever wear that out? <laughs> can I ever mess that up? Does His mercy ever just kind of wear thin? No, He's rich in this. He's abundant. And what's abundant mean? It means the supply is greater than the need. I've got great need. His supply is greater. Well, but wait a minute. You know what? I've seen some stuff that there was an abundant amount of it, but it ran out. Well, Lamentations 3 comes along there and tells us that God's mercy is new every morning. Every morning of my life, every morning I wake up, God's mercy for me is replenished. It is at its full and abundant level. It is at its full wealth of mercy. It's brand new for me every day. And how could, how could God do that? Why does He do that? Well, it says because of its, His great love. His great love for you. That's that agape love that we looked at in Ephesians chapter 1. That, that committed love, that love that is driven not by condition. He loves unconditionally. That word grace that we see in our passage, that we heard in our song, it means unmerited favor. It is an act that somebody does that is not based on your deservedness, not based on your ability to pay back. God's love moved into our life without condition. It's that love, as we saw in Ephesians 1, that moved Him to select us. He didn't select us because we were better than others. It's that love that moved Him to sacrifice for us. He didn't sacrifice because we were oh so worthy of it. It's that love that moved Him to seal us, to lock us in that love because we wouldn't be able to keep ourselves there. It's this kind of great love that pursues the highest good of somebody else. God's love pursues your highest good. And you know what the result is? It says it right there at the end of verse 5. You are saved. You're rescued. That verb, are saved, is in the perfect tense. You're about to hear the most exciting grammar lesson you've heard in your life. The perfect tense of a verb means it is a completed action with continuing results. You see, when it says you are saved, that is a completed action. He has reached down into the pit I built for myself, into the mess I put myself in. He rescued me. He saved me out of that. As we saw in Ephesians 1, He adopted me. He took me from being a child under wrath to being a child now under inheritance. To being a child of God. He rescued me out of that. He put me in this position. That is completed. That is finished. It is done. But, but it's not over. That, that action has ongoing results. By the way, it is that perfect tense right there that is just one of many things that communicates the idea that once we are saved, once we are genuinely rescued, we can't lose that salvation. Because He did it, completed action, but then He keeps us saved. If you were literally to interpret that phrase, it would be this, He saved you and He keeps on saving you. 
That moment you trust in Him as your Savior and Lord, you put your faith in what He did for you at the cross. He saves you and He keeps on saving you throughout the rest of your life. We're 28 verses into this book. And every single one of those verses is said, You are loved. You are loved. I want to tell you something. It's a warning. Paul's setting you up. (laughs) You just think you've seen a speed trap. Paul's getting ready to entrap every single one of us. Because you see, as he develops this love throughout Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, he is bringing us to the place that we are so utterly overwhelmed by this that we cannot help but cry out, How? How do I respond to this kind of love? As a matter of fact, if you can look at this kind of love and go, Oh man, that's great. Are we done almost? If this love doesn't overwhelm you, you're dead. But if you're alive, it brings you tears of joy. It breaks your heart. You can't understand how you could be loved like this. And you have to say, how do I respond? And that's what the entire second half of the book of Ephesians is about. He is going to tell you verse after verse after verse. This is how you respond. And I want to tell you something. Some of these verses are going to be hard. You're going to say, I can't can't do that. That person doesn't deserve for me to do... Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I forgot a whole lot's been done to me when I didn't deserve it. You see, God's going to take... Or Paul's going to take this love of God and he's going to show us what it means to our relationship and our role in the church. He's going to take this love and show us what it means inside of our marriage, inside of our parenting, inside of the workplace. He's going to show us what this means inside of relationships that have hurt us. And He's going to take us into all aspects of our life and say, you are loved by God. Here's how you act like it. So get ready. You're loved. And you know what the result of that is? I, I, I like the way Paul said it in Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous, Do you see those two words, declared righteous? That is what Thomas Harris desperately wanted. He wanted that for himself and he wanted that for you and he wrote a whole book and seven million others are trying to find the same thing. I want to know I'm okay. There's just one problem. I don't have the authority or the ability to declare myself okay. I don't have the authority or the ability to declare you okay. But you know who can? Your Creator. You know who can? The one who judges your life at the end. So see, it means nothing when I say, I'm okay because I said so. You're okay because I said so. But it means something when God says, you've been declared righteous by faith. And the result is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard me define that word peace. What's it mean? I'm okay. I don't know if Thomas Harris ever got to know this before he died. He almost got it right. But if he didn't fix it, then as close as he was, he missed it by an eternity. I am okay. 
Two more words. In Jesus. You are okay. In Jesus. Do you see how phenomenal it is to be able to say that when you realize the condition that we were in? We were never going to be okay. But God. But God. Let's pray. Oh Lord. Thank you. Thank you for telling me the truth. Because if I didn't know the truth, I wouldn't fix it. Thank you for letting me see that in and of myself, I'm not okay. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter what church I pick or what denomination I belong to. I'm not okay and I'm not going to be okay. Thank you for your kindness in letting me know that. And oh God, thank you for your grace. That you wouldn't leave me in that condition. You moved. I didn't. Your grace and your love moved to rescue me from that. And in you, I can be okay. Thank you. Oh, dear God, may I live like it. God, may I stop going out into the world and trying to figure out life from them, from a bunch of people who are not okay. Trying to figure out life from, from Satan and his influences and his temptations. And he's not only not okay, he desires my destruction. Lord, you've made me okay. May I give my life to turning to your word and committing myself to living like it so that others can see it and others can come to understand the good news. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, I don't even, I don't even remember the number now. Do you? What did I tell you? This was like eight, four, five, six sermons ago. I said in the book of Ephesians, we're going to see those two words, in Jesus. Did I say like 36 times? 33 times? And our whole life is in Jesus. Our opportunity to be okay is in Jesus. Are you in Jesus today? Are you in Jesus? And you know what? If right now you're saying, gosh, I'm, I'm not sure if I am. I, 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 or even worse, I know I'm not. You know what? You're dead. You don't have the ability to know that on your own. If you can sit here today and say, I'm not sure I am, I don't think I am, I know I'm not, that is the Holy Spirit out of grace and love whispering in your ear right now. You're not okay. But the Savior wants you to be. He's telling you, not to make you feel bad about yourself, He's telling you because there's good news. Man, if you're not okay, if you're not in Jesus, I hope today, by faith, you'll step out of that pew. Come down these aisles, come down these galleries, take one of these pastors by the hand. I say it every single weekend. And say, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to be in Him. Let us pray with you for a moment and talk with you for a moment about how you can be in Jesus. You know, once He does that, it's a completed action. You remember me saying that? And it goes on forever and ever.
He will keep you in Jesus for all eternity. You need to be in Jesus today. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing. You come forward. And God will say yes to you. Maybe today God's leading you to become a part of this church family. You know what? If God's telling you that, that's God telling you that. Say yes to Him. And we will gladly receive you into the life of this church. So as we stand and as we sing, if God's speaking to you right now, say yes. He loves you.